This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Nicole Krauss read her story, Long Island, from the May 22, 2023 issue of the magazine. Krauss is the author of four novels, including The History of Love and Forest Dark. Her story collection, To Be a Man, was published in 2020 and won the Wingate Literary Prize. Now here's Nicole Krauss. Long Island. Riding the brakes bumper to bumper down 34th Street. At last we cross 2nd Avenue, and our father tows the gas and spins the giant steering wheel, mahogany and fit for a ship, for that's what this metallic, pink champagne-colored Cadillac Fleetwood Brome is, an 18-and-a-half-foot urban yacht and the least practical vehicle imaginable for sailing through bankrupt, crime-ridden, late 1970s New York City. We follow the slight curve of the down-ramp until we're sucked into the mouth of the Midtown Tunnel with a womp, and the pressure changes as the car descends. The soundscape becomes tamped down, interiorized, like when we jump into the pool and hear the thud of blood in our ears. Kneeling by the window, because there are no seatbelts to prevent us, we see the grimy white wall tiles smear past in a dizzying, almost nauseating way. Even the light is grimed and fluorescent dim, flickering to the tune of a seizure. Halfway through, claustrophobia sets in, and it really does seem as if there will never be an end to it, never a light at the end of the tunnel, while above the brown and vaguely furry ceiling of the Cadillac and the exhaust grayed ceiling of the tunnel itself lies the dark, slurry bottom of the East River, with its Metropolitan Museum-grade collection of suicided and murdered bodies. But just when it seems as though we, too, may somehow get trapped and die prematurely down there, the lane at last veers, daylight shines forth through the arch up ahead, and we are spat out onto the other shore and guided onto the gentle incline that leads to the still cash-only toll plaza, and beyond that, aglow with tail and headlights, to the great shimmering path of the Long Island Expressway, whose construction began the year Hitler invaded Poland and thus expanded his continental ambitions for the mass murder of the Jews, a fact that isn't entirely lost on us, for once we pass through the rich complication of queens and the jam of cars starts to fall away, when the expressway clears and the Fleetman Brom can finally set sail, a feeling of freedom rises in the back of our throats, the sense of getting away that accompanies all forward acceleration, and with it the knowledge that if we kept riding that feeling as far as it would take us, if our arguing parents missed our exit, the strip malls and houses would also fall away, and we would reach first the forests and then the coast, and at last a sense of America, which, to our ancestors who were shot or gassed 40 years ago, might as well have been the moon. But for now, the Cadillac, crossing two lanes and nearly kissing the front grill of a tractor trailer, exits just in the nick of time and slides like a hearse into the suburban silence of our new world. For our father had discovered a property, discovered it as Vespucci discovered America, 
by accident, looking for something else. And so we, who never intended to leave New York City, were never scheduled to leave it, have left New York City, left Sutton Place, left the doorman who pinched our fat cheeks, left our view of the 59th Street Bridge and the red neon Pepsi-Cola sign, which every night bled into the pitch-black river and suggested that capitalism could be beautiful, too. Left the graffitied perimeter walls of Central Park. Left the Central Park Zoo, which was as far into that lawless park as we were allowed to go, lest we be mugged or worse. Left the United Nations International School on First Avenue, where we tussled and exchanged snot, tears, and undiplomatic, even totally despotic ideas with the diplomat kids from Europe, South America, and Asia. Left the Turtle Bay Music School, where we would soon have graduated from playing the triangle, method courtesy of that Nazi favorite, Karl Orff, to mastering Bach. Left Bach, too, whose counterpoint we were taken to listen to at Avery Fisher Hall, where we had to be stuffed with raisinets so that we wouldn't complain out loud. We have left everything we know, elevators and checker cabs, walk and don't walk signs, fiscal crises, social disorders, FAO Schwartz, the governance of Mayor Koch, because our father took a wrong turn somewhere on land that the Quakers wrestled from the Massapequa, farmed, and then sold to industrialist robber barons at the end of the 19th century, and out there, on the not yet fully subdivided and still semi-wild North Shore, he came across a for sale sign in front of a large and implausible estate that spoke to his strange Garden of the Fincy Contini-style dreams. And our mother, exhausted by years of trying to drag her highly willful children through a richly cultured, vandalized city, did not have the inner resources to protest. Now, once we have finally got through to the distant, argumentative country of the front seats and registered our appeal for the release of the child safety lock that was installed to keep us from accidentally triggering the switch that would close the window on our necks. We push the silver switches on the passenger door consoles, and the back windows groan as they lower halfway. Halfway because that is all that GM trusts us with. We, the untamed children of the late 70s, the last of the unsupervised who, if the windows were to lower all the way, might well jump out. Eitan Potts won't go missing until the following year, so we children are still considered safe on the streets and with strangers, but not with fully open car windows. All the same, halfway is not nothing. Halfway is still enough for us to stick out our heads and get the air in our ears, to get our hair whipping across our faces until the wind catches it and pushes it back, and we can finally see it all, see the green and the wide, and the bright, and the empty, too. The empty and totally scary vista of suburban Long Island. The house on the property our father bought stood atop one of the highest hills on Long Island and was condemned. We might as well have been the Adams family buying real estate, the Munsters. The Spanish roof tile, laid in 1891, had proved too heavy and caved in. A car had crashed through one of the house's mock Tudor walls. Rusty beer cans floated in the wishing well. The copper Victorian cupola was askew and had to be pulled down, 
and with it went the views all the way to the Atlantic. But the ocean was still out there, dark and roiling, as we were reminded whenever the wind blew west and brought the salt air. And from time to time it rained so heavily that the great lawn flooded and seagulls wheeled wildly inland. The estate teetered on the farthest edge of the new world. At any moment our father might change his mind, switch course, and, as in a film that's rewound and everything reverses, head back, taking us with him, back to Europe, or back further to the Levant, where he'd spent the only happy years of his childhood. But, for the time being, we were living in America, which was not a place to live, as our grandfather often said, only a place to make a living. The estate had been built for a Wall Street tycoon in the 1890s. No owner had lived in the house since the death in the 1930s of the second one, a lawyer who'd been appointed to distribute German patents seized during the First World War. Since then, time and weather had delivered it to a state beyond repair. Once upon a time, the house had hosted members of the Rockefeller, Morgan, Frick, Roosevelt, Auchincloss, and Mellon families, who had danced below the terrace on a polished floor of aquamarine, while 10,000 orange lanterns illuminated the forest that enclosed the estate. But by the time our father came upon it, its vast ruins were inhabited only by two octogenarian twins, caretakers of what survived of the Gilded Age, whose remaining glory was a pair of Roman stone lions that guarded the entrance, and the 300-year-old copper beech trees that had been carted in by teams of horses and now stood as a measure for the passage of light and wind. Pacing on the lawn, looking out at the view, our father might have liked to quote some lines from the great Gatsby, if he could have remembered them. The gazebos with their conical terracotta tile roofs were covered with brambles and vines, as was a long red brick garden wall set with antique marble plaques. Later, when the jungle had been stripped away, one of these turned out to be from an Italian crusader who'd brought it back from Jerusalem as a souvenir. Before our father bought the house, during the period when the estate was being divided up and sold off in parcels, a blue and white enamel Madonna and child had been stolen, pried right off the wall, which as far as our father was concerned seemed appropriate, or even as it should be, since souvenirs from Jerusalem made sense in his world, whereas to live under the gaze of any Christian icon, no matter how grace-filled, was verboten. That he did not consider the symbolic significance of the theft of the heads of Beethoven, Bach, Chopin, Schubert, Brahms, and Haydn that had sat atop six tall granite pedestals in the garden, i.e. that culture, too, was largely verboten in the suburbs of Long Island, and that we were to be raised in a space of vanished heads, was a not insignificant oversight. But our father had more pressing concerns, born of esoteric fantasies and psychological compulsions that stood a chance of being unraveled only while he was lying on his back on a couch, if he were willing, which he was not. Other treasures too heavy to steal, a Roman sarcophagus, a 17th-century wishing well from Verona, had remained in their place in the formal English gardens, which were designed by the less talented sons of Frederick Law Olmsted. These were laid out on three levels, 
with a shade garden on the east and west and a great lawn below. Down there, where the grass had grown to six feet, there also lived in a small house the former stable boy, who was now past ninety and made his way up the ha-ha with the help of a cane. He and the octogenarians, who'd had their fill of shepherding deranged beauty, handed our father the keys and departed for other worlds. Much of the house had to be torn down, but our quixotic father saved its two most spectacular rooms, a grand living room and a chapel with twenty-five-foot ceilings, both of which were Jacobean and had been dismantled in England, shipped to America, and reassembled here. Around these antique wood-paneled rooms, the architect our father hired, German and famous for his brutalism, planned a modern masterpiece, but one whose artfulness forwent comfort and livability. He proposed suspending our, the children's, bedrooms on platforms in the chapel, which could be accessed by ropes, pulleys, and suspension bridges, an idea that was only narrowly overruled by our mother, who dug in her heels and used whatever she still had of her mother's German. Achtung, nein, ich erzieh mein Kinder nicht als Luftmenschen. Our bedrooms were grudgingly built instead in the new part of the house, but because our father ran out of money, they were tiny. Everything was within arm's reach of the bed, as in the sleeping compartments of the space shuttle that would explode as we watched a few years later. We lived crowded into this new wing, while the huge old rooms remained forbidding and cold, too expensive to heat, salvaged and restored, but impossible to integrate, a lesson in how we might learn to live with history. When we arrived in the Cadillac, the house was still unfinished. There were no doors on the rooms, and we had to avoid stepping with bare feet on the upturned nails in the carpet tack strips that had yet to receive any carpet. Half the house was sheeted with plastic to keep out the rain, which found its way in any way and flooded the basement. Trained as an aerospace engineer, our father employed himself as the construction manager in order to reduce expenses. He could afford the work only in stages, so it stretched on and on, with no end in sight. In those years, when both our house and our psyches were under construction, this eternal unfinishedness became for us a kind of philosophy of being. Our world was always in process, never complete, and eventually we lost faith in the idea of completion. If there was any fixed point in our minds, it was what we had left behind, what we'd had to escape back there, in order to be here, with here being too expensive and elusive to ever finalize, and there being the claustrophobic dead end of history. Between these two points was a long and abstract journey that, judging by our father, involved the shaping of character. After a series of hirings and firings, our father settled on a few skilled workers who met his standards, and these he hired permanently. This cabal of carpenters, masons, and painters became fixtures in our family, slowly raising a fortress around us, according to our father's instructions. They built and restored, leveled and hammered, sanded and spackled, and became involved, in one way or another, in all aspects of our family's life. They took us to get our hair cut, and when we missed the bus, 
they drove us to school in their vans, which had no back seats, only a long front bench that we all piled onto together, rolling with the sharper turns, while behind us paint cans banged loudly against the metal walls. Our favorite, Mo, had a black fan, and because in the months after Eitan Potts's face started showing up on milk cartons, someone driving a black van around our neighborhood was rumored to have tried to grab children and stuff them into it. Whenever Mo pulled up at school, our classmates went silent and scattered. When I wet my pants in the middle of recess one day, our mother was out, and it was Mo who was delegated to bring me fresh underwear. These he handed across the threshold of the classroom in a brown paper bag, a detail he might have lifted from the aesthetics of a drug deal. There was also Luigi from Calabria, who in his white t-shirt and painter's pants, with black orthotic shoes and a ring of frizzy hair horseshoed around an otherwise bald pate, had the look of a clown in our father's experimental theater. His English was limited. He relied heavily on gesture and his face was always exploding into grins or grimaces that did the work of the language he didn't have. There were endless rounds of sanding and skim-coating the walls, innumerable applications of the spirit level, whose tiny bubble floating in yellow-green liquid so rarely reported a perfect balance. By the time it was reached, and the walls were finished with their final coat of eggshell white, they'd achieved a kind of sacred status. We weren't allowed to touch them, lest we leave smudges or stains. We moved through the house at a distance from these pristine white walls, but out of the corners of our eyes and on the outskirts of our thoughts, we were always aware of their perfection. The walls were an homage to a deity that we had been taught to respect and fear, and as with all sacred objects made for the purpose of supplication, if we were careless and caused them damage, we could bring down upon ourselves grave consequences, beginning with our father's wrath. Only when I was a little older and first saw photos of buildings bombed during the war, their ruined interior walls exposed to the exterior, did our father's obsession take on a more nuanced meaning. Along with Mo and Luigi and Tony who laid bricks, there was Andre, a craftsman who had done his apprenticeship in Holland then come to America as a seaman and jump ship. He was a prima donna, always getting into arguments with our father, who he believed didn't fully appreciate his mastery. Insulted, he would disappear for a week, then return again without a word. For more than a year, he lay on his back on a platform atop scaffolding in the Grand Salon, restoring the wedding cake plaster filigreed ceiling. He was always there working with his delicate tools, his face covered in a fine white dust, unless he was on the outs with our father, in which case the platform sat vacant. One day, after yet another walkout, our father switched course. Rather than greeting Andre upon his return with the usual rage, he casually addressed him as Michelangelo. This sly concession seemed to assuage something in the Dutchman, Thereafter, he was never again called anything else, and like his namesake, he remained on his back atop the scaffolding, returning the ceiling to its former glory, then surpassing it. Years later, when I stood in the Sistine Chapel, gaping up at the hand of Adam, reaching for the long finger of God, 
I couldn't help feeling a certain pride that came from my personal association with the miracle overhead, as if my own strange childhood were implicated there. After all, the parallels weren't hard to see. In the scene following the one painted by the great artist, God would sequester Adam in a beautiful garden with incredible trees and a dubious plan to keep him safe, though safe from what and safe from whom would always be the question. In those years, our father was still in the family business with our grandfather. They owned two factories, one in New York and the other in Israel, both of which produced high-precision gears. The Israeli factory made replacement parts for a fleet of French Mirage fighter jets that the Israeli Air Force had purchased in the early 60s and which had contributed to Israel's victory over Syria, Jordan, and Egypt in the Six-Day War. The business seemed to be plagued by problems, which our father brought home and took upstairs to his bedroom to shout about in the phone with his father or discuss in strained tones with our mother. Their voices traveled through the heating ducts and, owing to some acoustical phenomenon, arrived amplified in our bedrooms. In this way, we caught the broadcast of all sorts of things we should never have known about, including the news that the manager at the Israeli factory had been sent a package bomb. Only thanks to some malfunction of the detonator were the manager's secretary and everyone else around her saved from being blown to bits. For a while, that seemed to be the end of it. But then a letter with a Syrian postmark arrived in our mailbox, signed by the Popular Front of the Liberation of Palestine, a Marxist-Leninist revolutionary faction of the PLO. It was addressed to our father, who, the letter stated, was on its blacklist, and if he failed to show proof of having divested his holdings within six months, there would be a price to pay. Our father went immediately to the Israeli mission, which had an office in the city on 3rd Avenue, and was, in those days, a thin cover for the Mossad. They told him not to worry, that they would follow up and take care of it. But as our father was unsure of what that meant, and they were not inclined to give updates, he gathered the workmen and applied them to the task of raising a ten-foot chain-link fence around our property's perimeter. We watched as the ground was leveled so that it would be flush with the new fence, preventing anyone from slithering underneath. Then we observed the posts being pounded in, one by one, and the great rolls of fencing unfurled and secured in place. The posts were capped in a special way to allow for the addition of barbed wire. Barbed wire? Only at the last minute did our mother put her foot down, refusing to live as if inside a prison camp. Perhaps she had begun to suspect that our father's fantasies were paranoid, even delusional. After all, it didn't take much to post a threatening letter from Syria. But what was the likelihood that the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine would dispatch a terrorist to Long Island, at considerable cost and risk, to go after the 50% owner of a small factory that produced spare parts for the navigational systems of Israeli planes. In any case, the unused barbed wire remained on the property for a long time, waiting in ominous spiked rolls in the shade of a magnolia tree. Still, for our father, offense wasn't enough. Indeed, the question of what would be enough to keep us safe from terrorists, neighbors, 
history became less and less clear. One day we came home from school and discovered that he'd had panic buttons installed in every bedroom, a small red circle that, if pressed, set off a deafening alarm and sent an emergency signal directly to the police. A few days later, he handed us each a portable panic device attached to a chain, which we were to wear around our necks when playing outside. These pieces of panic jewelry were constantly getting lost, and our friends from school were always pressing the alluring red panic buttons in our bedrooms. Soon after that, a motorized gate was installed at the bottom of the driveway. It was forever getting stuck, as well as a surveillance system with cameras that observed all possible approaches and broadcast them to a black-and-white TV set on the kitchen counter, which we watched while eating breakfast, zoning out to the grainy footage that confirmed that we remained, for now, safely alone with ourselves. A year after we moved to Long Island, our mother's parents, who lived in Jerusalem, came to visit. They toured the experimental German house and the Jacobean rooms, walked in the English gardens, and asked themselves, loud enough for everyone else to hear, what kind of place this was for Jews. In other words, they failed to see the psycho-historical connections. Our father, born to immigrants who, like his in-laws, had got out of Europe just before the rest of their families were murdered, had spent his early years in a fourth-floor walk-up in Brooklyn, and used to remind us that his own backyard had been a fire escape, and his hero, Houdini. He rarely lost an opportunity to quote back to us the great escape artist's motto, Do others, or they will do you. And though he made no effort to explain its veiled meaning, in time we deduced it. Our parents knew no one on Long Island, and suspicious of the locals, they had no interest in changing that. We were saved from total isolation thanks only to the fact that our father's sister, Magda, and her husband, Zali, decided to buy a plot of land down the street, had a house built, and moved in, along with our three cousins. There were then five of us. Our small tribe rode bicycles through the neighborhood, always looking over our shoulders for the kidnapper's ominous black van. We never saw it, but by then we had begun to understand that the real criminals weren't the ones who were passing through, but the ones we lived among. For example, the owner of the house that sat at 12 o'clock on the cul-de-sac at the end of our street had borrowed money from the mafia, which he couldn't pay back, and jumped, was forced to jump, from the window of a Manhattan skyscraper. A few doors in the other direction, Dr. Brzezowski, who started out as a pediatrician and overnight became a diet doctor, sold speed, imported from Colombia and administered out of a giant tank to an endless queue of women. When he was eventually caught and a federal lawsuit was filed against him, he too killed himself. Kitty Corner at number nine, Mr. Moretti worked for his wife's family in the florist business. One night, he ran across the street to the doctor who lived there, screaming that his wife had fallen down the stairs. By the time the doctor arrived, she was dead. The wife's family didn't believe it was an accident. Rope marks were found around her ankles and wrists. 
and they hired a private detective who followed Moretti down to Florida and tapped his phone. Soon afterward, he was convicted of murder. Year after year brought more. On Cornwall Lane, there were two brothers who lived in adjacent houses and were in business with their father. The father, arrested for tax evasion, killed himself, and the sons both went to prison. The guy next door to us was a big-time plumber who did work for the city and had a sweetheart in the comptroller's office with whom he had a payola scheme, submitting astronomical bills for fixing city toilets and drains for approval with a kickback. He did a stint in prison, and when he got out, he stole some large granite slabs from a cemetery in Queens, which he used as steps for his swimming pool. There was a doctor on Meadow Lane with two St. Bernards who overbilled to Medicaid and got caught for it. On the same street, there was a man who got into trouble for price-fixing for Mica, and around the corner, on Primrose Lane, one who was a part owner of a ductwork business and drove a Rolls-Royce, and every morning on the way to work in Queens, stopped to visit his girlfriend. One day there was a hit-and-run, and it took no time at all for the cops to trace it back to his Rolls. It came out that he'd been funneling money from the business to the mistress, and he agreed to a plea bargain while the business filed for bankruptcy. Even our dog became briefly criminal. One day he ran off and killed one of the neighbor's cats. The neighbor sued, demanding his execution. All four of us had to appear in court as witnesses in the deposition. The cat was old, and the dog had scared her to death, but hadn't actually mauled her. And in the end, he was narrowly cleared of the charges, with the warning that the next time he escaped, he would be put to sleep. In other words, criminals were all around us, and this pervasiveness of criminality, its commonplaceness, also entered into our deepest sense of being. It's been said that in any family it takes only two bounces to get to a criminal, but no one needed to tell us as much. We knew it through an instinctive grasp of statistics, calculated in the gut. Indeed, there were times when we wondered, stumbling on our own stores of guilt, whether that criminal was within us. But good and bad, us and them, black and white, all of it became smudged gray with the passage of coastal seasons, and we developed an acceptance of wrongdoing as an inevitable aspect of adult life, or perhaps of life in general. In the woods behind our cousin's house, we played at Godfather. Our crimes piled up, as did our debts, our Sicilian messages, our retaliations. In the basement of Aunt Magda and Uncle Zolly's house, we sent one another to sleep with the fishes. And it was down there, one November afternoon, killing ourselves softly in the cedar closet, that we came across the safe. It was tucked into a recess behind the hems of Aunt Magda's fur coats, and if, after being shot at point-blank range, I had not leaned all the way back to inhale their still pungent animal scent, I wouldn't have knocked the back of my skull against it. The instinct to wail loudly was suppressed when our cousin, crouching down, looked past me into the darkness and let out a low whistle for what I had nearly concussed myself on was a gunmetal gray Mosler safe, about two feet tall and 18 inches wide, 
with a dial tumbler and a lever. Very little conversation, perhaps none, was needed for us to arrive at the conclusion that what was locked inside was not only valuable, but also illegal or related to illegal activity. This assumption was based on math, on the readily available numbers against the likelihood of anything above board, and also on what we knew of our uncle's past, which was almost nothing beyond that he had been born in a Polish DP camp after the war. To say that he was not talkative would be an understatement. He smoked with what seemed to be the ambition to destroy whatever was left of his raspy voice and spent his evenings closed up in his study listening to Schubert. Once, during a trip to see our grandparents in Israel, our father had remarked that the whole country was filled with crazy people because it was filled with survivors, that in order to have survived the Holocaust, one had to be capable of doing crazy things, and so Israel was, in its way, a kind of mental asylum. Then he told the story of a woman he and our mother had just met for coffee, who, as a seven-year-old, had defended herself against a predator in the camps by hiding the broken end of a bottle in her fist and cutting his face open when he came after her. From this we glean that of our relatives, Uncle Zali had inherited the greatest capacity for craziness, since his mother had survived for two years in a concentration camp. In other words, Uncle Zali's transgressions were preordained by the convergence of history and character, and so we were not surprised when, in the days that followed the discovery of the safe in the cedar closet, we turned up behind some bottles of Alka-Seltzer in his medicine cabinet two rubber-banded rolls of hundred-dollar bills. It was only when we looked through his sock drawer and found a Colt Python revolver that we began to fear that, like our neighbor who had leaped or been pushed out of the skyscraper window, Uncle Zali had gotten in too deep. Staring at the gun with its black grip and its stainless steel barrel, we tried to imagine what he had done that had necessitated owning one, and who might be after him. From then on, we saw Uncle Zali in a different light, thinner and limbed with impermanence. We didn't go to our parents. That might be hard to fathom now, when children immediately go to their parents about everything, when there isn't even such a thing as going to one's parents, because we who are now parents are forever there, rarely leaving our children alone for a moment. But back when we grew up, going to one's parents was like crossing a lake. That was how far away they seemed to us, how remote. And even if we made the effort to cross it, we couldn't be sure that they would be there when we arrived. They were most likely off somewhere else. They were busy. They were trying to get out of all the things they'd gotten into. They had gotten out of the city but in doing so they had gotten themselves into other things that now needed getting out of too. And in any case, the safe, the money, the gun, to admit that we'd found any one of these was to confess to having been up to things we shouldn't have been up to and to risk our parents' fury. So we didn't go to them. We kept our mouths shut and tried to figure things out in our own way. In those days we read a lot, whatever was around, which was mostly our mother's old paperbacks, whose brown paper crumbled when we turned the pages. We read to get ahead, 
but not in the way that is meant now when people tell children they ought to read. We read simply to get out of childhood. To read was to arrive at the future more quickly. It was to bypass years, to satisfy a desire for experiences that we were still too young to have. And along the way, we learned all sorts of things, both useful and useless. When our mother was around and in a good mood, we could often persuade her to drive us in the Cadillac to the public library. And it was there, in a book on private investigators, with a chapter on safe cracking, that we discovered the standard sequence for dial locks. Four times to the right for the first number, three times to the left past the first number to the second, two times to the right past the second number to the third, and then to the left for the fourth number. A meeting was called in the woods. There was snow on the ground, but our cousins arrived wearing sneakers with no socks, because that was how they were, careless, unprepared for everything, and therefore ready for anything. All that was needed now was to figure out the four numbers that meant the most to our uncle. Months, days, years, some combination of meaningful dates. Unless it was part of an old phone number or an address where he had once lived. In the weeks that followed, we ducked down to the cedar closet whenever the opportunity arose to try new combinations. Meanwhile, life continued. Winter dragged on, and in the course of the next months, our neighborhood was hit by a series of robberies. Five houses altogether. A police officer who had a side business mowing lawns on the weekends, ours included, told our parents that the burglars would never go for our house because of its position atop the hill, above the rest of the neighborhood. Plus, not only was it fenced on all sides, but there were no woods edging the property where they could dump the goods and escape on foot to a waiting getaway car should they be pursued. And yet in the early spring, after the snow melted, we found at the edge of our garden on an ivy-colored hill that sloped down to the street a jewelry box that had been emptied and tossed away, its little drawers pulled out, and its turquoise wood rotted from water damage. We also found one day, at the back of a drawer in Uncle Zolly's study, behind his palm malls, a notebook small and thin enough to fit into a shirt breast pocket with the LL logo printed on its vinyl cover. We checked all the drawers plenty of times, we had found his playboys and hustlers, but we had missed the notebook. Either that, or it had only recently been moved there. Inside, on the first page, were a series of passwords, the code to the alarm system, which we recognized, and below that, a four-digit number. No one else was home. That goes without saying. We hurried down the steps into the basement and filed into the cedar closet, Ideas about what we might find stirring in us as we pushed the pungent fur coats aside and knelt before the safe. Our oldest cousin, selected to do the honors, blew on his fingers, a purely dramatic gesture because by then we were practiced enough at the procedure that it took only two tries for the dial to engage and the bolt to retract with a muffled knock. We had imagined many things, in our childish speculation about adult transgression, we had pictured stacks of money, drugs, stolen jewelry, 
even gold bullion. But we had come to accept that Uncle Zolly was criminal in the way of so many, that he operated outside the limits of the permissible, because life was an ongoing struggle for survival that one was forever about to lose, that certain versions of morality simply weren't affordable, that life had to be lived defensively, which required a shrewdness that saw a way around or over or through the obstacles, a way to evade the things that were coming to close you down, put you away, even kill you. And yet it had never occurred to us that our uncle, enclosed in his call of silence, might himself be the aggressor. Inside the safe was a large blue velvet bag, the kind that our parents kept the kiddish cups in so that they wouldn't get tarnished, or the manure that remained unused in the sideboard for 51 weeks of the year. There was nothing else. Only this blue velvet bag that was printed with the name of a silversmith in Israel, Hatzarfim, whose shop we had seen many times in the lobby of the hotel where we stayed in Jerusalem when visiting our grandparents. We gathered around our cousin, who lifted the bag by its drawstrings. When he reached inside, his face took on a look first of bewilderment and then of horror. We pressed closer, breathing heavily, and then not breathing at all, when what he pulled out of the bag was a skull. It was brown and mottled, the eye sockets crusted with dirt, the nasal cavity blackened, the mandible missing altogether. Though I remember much about those years, I don't remember what words passed between us in the long minutes between our finding the skull and burying it back in the bag. That blue velvet bag meant not for bone, but for silver, meant to house what was precious, not what was left after all that had once been precious had departed. This is how the stories we grow up to tell are born, of an effort to explain something that happened to us, until we discovered that what we wanted to explain is fundamentally inexplicable, that we have stumbled into a hole in our knowledge or an absurdity that we mistook for normal and accepted. In the years that followed, we never spoke of the skull to one another. On that spring afternoon, we returned it to the safe and never mentioned it again. I don't know about the others, but I myself made no real attempt to figure out what it meant, how it had come to be there. The skull existed the way our leaving the city existed, and our house existed, and the fence around it, without an appeal to reason. Our parents stayed in the house for decades after we grew up and left, free at last, or so we thought, until we learned that there are certain prisons, constructed with the best intentions, for the utmost protection that one carries with one. When at last they sold the house, it was to a Chinese family who believed that it was auspicious, and asked our father to leave behind whatever had been there for a long time. When he and our mother drove out through the motorized gate for the last time, I liked to think that the screen of the monitor in the kitchen finally went black. But of course it must still have transmitted the idea, one it took us years to refute, if we ever did, that vacancy is the only reliable form of safety. 
It wasn't until the house was sold and Uncle Zolly was long dead, himself nothing but a skull in the loam, that we learned the truth. Aunt Magda was moving to a nursing home and while clearing out her apartment had found the velvet bag. She gave it to our oldest cousin, who had grown up to become a lawyer and knew his way around the law, and told him to find a place to bury it. And when he asked, at last, what he should make of it, she sighed and with a sad smile said that when Uncle Zali was a young man, on a trip to somewhere else, he had taken a detour and passed through the Polish village of Lupachovo, where on the morning of August 25th, 1941, the Einsatzkommando had marched all the Jewish men into the forest and massacred them. There, in the shallow earth, Uncle Zali had found the skull. And in his fury, in his grief, he had brought it home with him, appalled at himself, at life, at history. He had not known where to put it to rest, and it had gone on living with them all these years. That was Nicole Krauss reading her story, Long Island. She's been publishing fiction in the magazine since 2004. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Jonas Hassan Kamiri reads A Slice of Life by Vladimir Nabokov. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.